You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2011. Today's episode is titled, Capitalism for the Long Term. The current popular paradigm of capitalism is marked by short-term thinking, greed, and, and poor governance. Because of these sins, there is an increasing risk of government intervention into and control over the business systems of this world. Pundits generally offer remedies from a naturalistic perspective, which is at best incomplete and at worst erroneous. Capitalism as an economic and business philosophy is not doomed to fail. When capitalism fails, it is due to the way people practice it. The best way to remedy the current flawed practice of capitalism will not be found in naturalistic thinking, but in biblical thinking. The only sound way to build an organization is based on a biblical worldview. To develop a biblically sound paradigm of capitalism requires godly people, workers and management, who are committed to living according to God's will and God's ways. Capitalism, when so practiced, will be an efficacious economic and business philosophy. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Capitalism for the Long Term. Good morning to you all. Uh, I'm having to do all the technology, too, in addition to trying to talk to you. So bear with me a second here. Well, my assignment is to uh, do an assessment of a paper that was written in the, uh, by Dominic Barton, and I'm going to introduce him in a minute. But uh, he, is, um, he wrote a paper earlier this year that was published in the Harvard Business Review, and I've included this in the notes here. So those of you that are interested in these notes, uh, if you'll send me an email, then I will send you the notes, and you'll have this paper. Um, but before we jump into the assessment of the paper, I want to give you some stats. <clears throat> um, this is a survey that came out just this week. It was commissioned by Baylor University, uh, and it's, it's a survey that's, that they believe that the results are valid for America. They don't pretend that this is true for anyone else. But here's some of the key results. I just want to read these to you real quickly, uh, starting at the bottom here. Believe God is actively engaged in economics. The question is, what percent of the population of the U.S. believes that's true? The next one is believes God is not actively engaged in economics. Then the third one is political conservatives who believe in ultimate truth. The fourth one is believe that God has a plan for me. Fifth, believe me, we need less government intervention. Sixth is believe able-bodied people who are out of work should not receive unemployment benefits. And the seventh key finding was believe anything is possible if you work hard. So those are some of the key results that were reported. I'm sure there are a lot more. What I saw was the article that uh, you can see down here. So uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't dig down into the, the complete report. I just read a report on the report. So this is what, what the findings show. The bottom, from, starting from the bottom, what percent of the American population believe God is actively engaged in economics? Take a guess. 10%? 5? 5%? 20%? Huh? Hey, come on. What do you think? 30? Well, they reported 20%. What percent of the uh, U.S. population believe God is not actively engaged in economics? 90%? Is that what you said? Yogi Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Huh? Huh? Somebody? Anybody? Come on, take a guess. 
I mean, you, you guys live in this culture. What do you think? You rub shoulders with people? Do they think God's engaged or not? Sixty? Twenty percent. That's a startling number, isn't it? Now, you know what that says? There's 60% in the middle that's ambivalent. Okay? Now, that's a very interesting stat to me because there is another study that was done. And in this study, the question was, are you actively engaged in supporting the mission of your organization? Or are you actively engaged in sabotaging the mission of your organization? Or are you ambivalent? Okay? The stats were virtually the same. 20% basically do the work. 20% actually work against the organization, even though they're paid by the organization, and the middle don't care. That was fascinating to me. I thought, well, there's got to be a correlation here, because, see, the point I'm going to try to make here is that theology defines your economic philosophy, whether you realize it or not. And I think that's that's one of the points of this particular study. How about political conservatives who believe in ultimate truth? What percent of political conservatives do you think believe in ultimate truth? Hmm? 30? 40? 70? 25? You guys are all over the board. 81%. That's a little bit encouraging. What about that 19% of political conservatives that don't believe in ultimate truth? All right, how many, what percent believe that God has a plan for me? What percent do you think that would be? Huh? You think it's high? Okay, give me a number. 90, 75. Come on. I don't think it would be high. 25? 15%? Well, Colleen wins. 73%. All right, at what percent believe we need less government intervention? Hmm? 40? 80? 60? 49%. All right, what percent believe able-bodied people who are out of work should not receive unemployment benefits? should not receive them. Yeah. If you're able-bodied and you can work, you shouldn't be paid not to work. Okay, what percent? 30? 20? This is a more encouraging number. 79%. Yeah. Well, this is supposedly, this is a sample of the, of the U.S. population. This is, the, this is what the typical Americans believe, which shows you that whether they realize it or not, their worldview, and that's one of the conclusions of the article, is your worldview, which is based on your theology, it drives how you think about economics. Okay? And what about this last one? Believe anything is possible if you work hard. Anything is possible if you work hard. 81, 85. I don't know about you, but I'd stick with Colleen. She's pretty good. <laughs> I think, Colleen, would you help me make some stock choices? <laughs> I seem to be striking out on that. 
<laughs> She's helped you. I got a I got a feeling you're not teachable. <laughs> you're probably like me. That's why my wife says you're not teachable. All right. What percent believe that anything is possible if you work hard? Do you might have a problem with that? That thing, because it just bothers you about that comment. Mm-hmm. What bothers you about it? Anything. Anything. It bothers me too. Because yeah. you can't do anything. You can only do what you've been called to do, what you've been created to do. So I don't like the question, but the answer was 92 percent. And I think it reflects the postmodernism yeah. in our culture. Well, the point of all this is not only to lighten you up and get you going here. But to point out that theology does drive how you think about very practical things like economic decisions. All right, well, let's get into Dominic Barton. Here's his thesis. His need to wake up and fix the business system. The current economic crisis stems from failures in governance, decision-making, and leadership on the part of business leaders. For us, that's, that's you and me. We're, most of us are business leaders. So we have a call to action. And here's the risk. If you don't respond to this call to action, then this current economic crisis is going to create a response on the part of the public. And the public is going to reject capitalism. It will no longer be socially tenable as an economic philosophy. So he says there's reform needed. And I'm going to give you his reform. And then at the end, I'm going to do a biblical analysis of his reform. Because what I found in going through the article is I read it a couple of times. My initial response was, this sounds reasonable. Until I pulled out my worldview tool. Remember the worldview tool we went went through last year? I pulled that out and I said, let me analyze it using my worldview tool. And I um, I was very upset with myself. Because I realized that even though I spend a lot of time thinking about worldview and trying to analyze things biblically, I got sucked in to his thinking and didn't critically assess it. So I was very, uh, very upset with myself and it was convicted of how I, I need a lot more transformation in this area too. But let's go, let's go through what he says and his argument before we analyze it. Or do you want to just skip to the analysis? Should we do that? Just go straight to the end. Don't worry about the details. You awake? <laughs> All right. Well, let me give you, let me give you the, the, the answer he provides. What do we need to do to reform the business system to, to meet the economic crisis of today? Number one, we have to fight short-termism, which means we have to shift from quarterly capitalism to long-term capitalism, which he defines as five to seven years. Has anybody got a hint? Okay, you get a hint here? Maybe his thinking is not quite lined up with Scripture. The next, next point is serve all stakeholders, not just shareholders. And the point here is that as you serve the share, stakeholders, then you will better serve the shareholders. And his third point is act like you own the place. In other words, govern like owners. That sounds like a pretty good concept, doesn't it? You know, and I think, you know, what you're going to see here, at least what I saw, was that he has an element of truth here, but it's just an incomplete biblical perspective. Now, the result of, of this, he says, is going to be four things. If we do this, if we, we follow through with his recommendations, four very positive things will happen. One is we'll have a stronger system, that is a stronger business system. We'll have increased innovation. 
We'll have a new era of prosperity, and we'll have restored public faith in business. So these are the positive things that he wants to stress. So we need to put through, go through the pain to get here. And if business does not address these issues that led to the economic collapse, does everybody agree we're, we're into an economic problem? And now they're beginning to talk about a recession, maybe a depression. And you know the difference between a recession and a depression? Okay? A recession is when your neighbor lost their job. A depression is when you lose your job. That's the difference. You haven't heard that before? So there, it's so interesting. Just a few months ago, pundits were saying, oh, no, we're not in for a double dip. It's not going to be a problem. And now it seems like everybody's on board. We're in for a double dip. And we don't know how far this dip's going to go. It would be interesting to see what the stock market does today, but the European market overnight did not do well. So I suspect the U.S. market will not do well today either. So if business does not address the issues that led to the collapse, then political reformers driven by an angry public will will. Maybe I said that again. Political reformers driven by an angry public will. Now, do you remember, do you guys paying attention to Greece? Have you watched what's going on in Greece? Do you understand what, what's driven the situation in Greece? The Greek people wanted a better standard of living, but they were unwilling to work harder and produce more. They just wanted a better standard of living. So the government capitulated and, using public debt, raised wages and did more programs. So not only did the people that work for the government get higher wages, but now contractors... Coming in, private contractors got government contracts, so they got more profit. And so this Greek has got themselves in this pickle by trying to give people things that they didn't earn. And now they're in a deep pickle. And you may be aware they've already had two rounds of bailout from the EU and the, the, uh, the IMF. And you may also be aware that the, the bailout came in tranches. It was not all at once. Well, there were conditions to releasing those funds. And the condition is this austerity movement. And when they got into the austerity movement, what happened? Riots. Protests. And so now Greek, Greece is in a pickle. Now, do you think the U.S. might be heading down that same road? Why would we think that we wouldn't be when we have this massive debt? Dennis quoted last night that, that the real debt of the American people, and by the way, you know the government debt is our debt? Those of us that are U.S. citizens, it's our debt. He quoted the real debt is somewhere $100 trillion. Well, what that is is, is all of the, the Social Security, Medicare obligations that have not been properly accounted for. And there's no, there's no sinking fund that we can dig into to cover that. We have to pay for that obligation out of current revenue. So if you stop and draw the line and say, you know, what do you really owe? You know, it's a whole lot bigger than the $14 trillion that's quoted, what you hear, you hear all the time in the, the publications. I saw an article this week where they were talking about if you take all of the private and public debt, excluding Social Security and Medicare, the debt number is $36 trillion. So I don't know. Is there a lot of difference between $36 trillion and $100 trillion? You know, a trillion's a trillion, right? You know? So the numbers are massive. And I, I, it's hard for me to see how in our lifetime we're going to be able to deal with this. But, you know, we may have to be doing some extreme things. Let me give you some examples of extreme things. Suppose the Chinese say, not going to buy any more of your, your debt, and when the debt that I have matures, I want to be paid back. 
and we don't have the money to pay them back, what are we going to do? Well, if we're business guys, business guys know how to handle this. You know what business guys would do? Okay. Well, we, we don't have cash, but we have other assets. How would you like the White House or the National Ball? How about Yosemite Park? You know, any of those. We've got all kinds of assets. We've got lots of assets in this country. We might wind up giving those assets to our creditors. You talk about our creditors own us, they will own us. So this is the risk that we're in. It's a serious situation publicly and privately. Now, the difference between the East and the West is the time frame of strategic thinking. Remember, his first point is, he makes three points, is we think short term. So he's contrasting the East and the West, saying the difference here is the way they think. In Asia, the term they think typically in 10 to 15-year terms. Then he claims that Korea thinks actually in 60-year terms. And I have seen articles where Japan actually has business leaders thinking in 500-year terms. So who here has a 500-year plan? Anybody? Oh, how about a 100-year plan? 50? 25? 15? How about a five-year plan? Okay, we might have a five-year plan. Okay. So we, we, so when you hear his accusation, do you think maybe it's true of us too? We may have the same thing going on. So we, we need to start thinking beyond ourselves. Now, here's a maxim. This is true of, of U.S. and Europe, and that is we're very myopic. And here's an example of this. The average CEO tenure in the U.S. is six years. Now, if you happen to be CEO of, of Hewlett-Packard, it's probably less than six years. Okay? Uh, public policy is shaped by politicians focused on the next election. You agree? Now, you know, when this, this country started, our politicians were not professional politicians. They were wise community leaders, and they volunteered to go and serve. It wasn't a full-time job, and they weren't making a career of it. Well, now we've turned it into a career, and so now that's shaping our ability to make wise choices. The average holding period for U.S. equities is seven months. That's the average. And then on top of that, we have this new hyperspeed trading, where literally people are holding stocks for matters of seconds. And according to his data, 70% of all trading in U.S. equities is hyperspeed trading. You know, they call this program-driven trading. So these are just examples of, of how, how we are functioning today. And, of course, the motivation for hyperspeed trading is what? It's all about money. How can I make a buck? Now, the consequence of biopic focus is short-term capital will beget short-term management. You've got our managers now are responding to the pressure from the investment community and they're, you know, they got to deliver quarterly results. You know, every quarter is critical. You, you miss a quarter, man, you're in the tank. And then you're very likely your job's on the line. Now, there are some exceptions to this in the West. So please understand, I've noted that this is a maxim. Now, who knows what a maxim is? Anybody know what a maxim is? Something that's generally true. Means it's not always true. It's generally true. So here are some exceptions to short-term thinking. The Canada Pension Plan Investment Board invests with a 25-year vision. You know of any investment board that invests with a 25-year vision? Well, there's one that does. There's probably a few more. 
but it's not common. Warren Buffett's holding period is forever. Now, that's not totally true again, that, but that's generally the way he approaches things. When he buys a position in a company, he's not looking at to sell it in five or seven years. He's looking for it to, over a long period of time, to grow and make a profit for him. IBM encourages investors to think in terms of a five-year vision. So they actually proactively try to train investors. And these other companies, Unilever, Coca-Cola, Google, and Ford, don't even provide earnings guidance, which frustrates the analyst because they're trying to figure out, you know, whether or not to recommend them. But see, these are, these are good moves because these are fighting this short-termism, which all saying it's all about the next quarter. Now, the leverage point in the fight against short-term myopia are the sources of capital. Now, wh how many trillions of dollars do you think we have in investment capital in the world? Anybody got a clue? Oh, Colleen knows. I know she knows. Mm -hmm. What is it, Colleen? I have no idea. <laughs> huh? It's $186 trillion according to Dominic. He claims that 35% of this comes from pension funds, insurance companies, mutual funds, and sovereign wealth funds. Sovereign wealth funds are funds associated with sovereign governments. Now, one would think that these sources of capital would think long-term, but they don't. The question is why. Why don't they think long-term? Anybody got a clue? Why wouldn't they think long-term? I mean, my goodness, if you're, a, if you're a pension fund and you've got people you're trying to invest for for 10, 20, 30 years, why aren't you thinking in those time frames? Well, because the metric for success is money. When money is the metric for success, everybody's focused on the next quarter. And all the contracts and the metrics for measuring investment managers are short-term. So if they're short-term, what are the investment managers going to do? They're going to think short-term, too. So, and what happens with the investment world, and some of us here have been around this world a good bit, is when you have a good quarter, and your, your approach to investing worked, and you, you beat the S&P or you beat most of the other guys, what do you do? You get your marketing guys, you on the road, baby. Look at how good we are. And you're trying to sign up more clients. Then the next quarter, suppose your investment philosophy didn't work as well, what are you doing? Well, you're just trying to hold on. Because the other guys that did well, they're coming knocking on your clients' doors, and you're just trying to hold on. So it's a yo-yo kind of thing going on in the investment world. Because really, there is no investment philosophy behind it other than money. It's all driven by money. So is that a clue? Anybody hear a clue there? Got a problem going on? In general, that 35% mm -hmm. is going down, down, down. Fewer and fewer large companies are, are, are even giving their employees a pension. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's this recommendation. How do, how do you fight short-termism? You review the performance of investment managers every three to five years instead of yearly. And you change the diversification strategy. Instead of holding thousands of stocks, you hold hundreds. And you encourage the investment managers to actively engage with the companies that they own to help improve performance. So, sound like pretty good recommendations, doesn't it? Would you agree? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that sounded pretty good to me. All right, let's go to point number two. Serve the stakeholders, enrich the shareholders. And I've got to speed up here. Uh, the widely accepted philosophy today is greed is good. Now, how many of you believe in that? Greed is good. You're all a bunch of liars. Okay? Because it's, it's, everybody buys into this, whether you know it or not. 
And it's, it's real easy just to test it. Define success for me. Come on. What's success? My clients are not allowed to answer. I want to hear what success is. Huh? Come on. What is it? Being able to provide for your family and give education. Well, but, but when somebody, you say Bill Gates is a success, why would you say that? He makes a lot of It's all about the money. Based on money, Jesus was a failure. You see? Now, if you didn't immediately go to that, you've got to be open that maybe greed is more in me than I realized. Maybe more than I want to admit. So I just I say that to you to encourage you not to I'm not trying to criticize anybody. We live we swim in the ocean of greed, you cannot help but swallow the water. It's in all of us. So greed is good. Gerald, you never Success is what Jesus said it was in John 17, 4. Remember what he said? That's right. Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you assigned me to do. That's success. When you do the work you've been assigned to do, you're a success. Money is simply a tool. Money's a tool to enable you to do the will of God, to do what he calls you to do. That's all it is. If you see it any way more than that, you're worshiping money. Okay. Was that too direct? My wife would say, don't be so direct. Yeah. You know, if, I, if we love each other, we tell each other the truth, don't we? Okay. Greed is good. It can be expressed as follows. Without some overarching financial goals to guide and gauge a firm's performance, critics fear managers can divert corporate resources to serve their own interests rather than the owners. So this is why... There's pressure on management to perform and to generate those short-term profits. The conclusion that most draw is that serving stakeholders, which is defined in the article as employees, suppliers, creditors, customers, communities, and the environment, is counterproductive to serving the shareholders. So he's saying basically management is focused on the shareholders and everybody else is second class. Now, obviously, he doesn't subscribe to this, and he cites a couple of examples. He cites Adam Smith, uh, who says this, All the members of human society stand in need of each other, others' assistance, and are likewise exposed to mutual injuries. He went on to write, The wise and virtuous man is at all times willing that his own private interest should be sacrificed to the public interest, should circumstances so demand. Now, how many of us think that way? I'm willing to sacrifice for the good of the public. Okay, if we're really thinking that way, all we need to do is decide, okay, we need to each write a check for about 40 grand and send it to the federal government to help them pay off the national debt, right? So who's, who's up for that? Yeah, we're not up for that because we're ultimately, we're very narcissistic in how we think and how we live. Then he cites a McKinsey report, some surveys from 2008, 2010, where executives and investors acknowledged that environmental, societal, and government initiatives created corporate value, and yet they don't act on what they say they believe. We would call that hypocrisy, wouldn't we? When you don't act on what you say you believe. Now, as a result of this, this greed is good mentality, this has led to a lot of mistrust. So here's a study that was done uh, by Edelman in 2001. This is his trust barometer. And we've, I've just got four countries up here. I've got Brazil, India, China, USA, U.S., and U.K. 
And the question is, what percent of the people here in these countries trust business? So, Colleen, Brazil. What do you think, Colleen? So she's the only one that knows the numbers. You guys don't seem to be able to get it. She gets it. What do you think, Colleen? Oh, no. Your barometer's off on that one. Actually, 81. Yeah. 81% of the Brazilian population trust business. How about India? 90? Anybody else? One? 60? 70%. How about China? All right, Terry, what do you think? I'm sorry, what is the question? Trust. What percent of the population trusts business? Trust business. Trust the business system, business people. Well, actually, 61%. How about the U.S. and the U.K.? Ah, she's picking it up. <laughs> that girl from Alaska smart. <laughs> There's a trend here. <laughs> 45%. So this is, this is a current survey, current study of trust of business. And he's citing this as an example of how the West... You see the U.S. and U.K. is what he defines the West, is actually losing ground here because the population doesn't trust business. So if the population doesn't trust business, what's likely to happen? The government's going to step in and do something. So his, what he's calling for is a reform to the business community because we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, and if we don't do something, government will. So in the West, the greatest good philosophy is eroded confidence in the capitalistic economic system. Though many executives and investors believe they must lead not only in business, but also socially and politically, few act on this because of the short-term pressure for immediate results. Yeah, Tom? Do you think in the U.S. some of that is, is because of the media, though? Uh, the one country that seems to have a real negative media climate? Well, it, it, it certainly the media generally is not pro-business, so it's not going to help. Consequently, the greed is good philosophy continues to drive investors, the capital markets, and therefore business. So his recommendation is we've got to focus on serving all stakeholders as a way to, over the long term, maximize the return to the shareholders. So he's saying stop focusing on the owners. Start focusing on really being a servant. Does that sound like something you ought to do, being a servant leader? Where you serve, you're, you're dying to self to serve others. Okay, the third point he likes to make here, or his recommendation he's making, is act like you own the place. He contends that corporate ownership is generally fragmented, and that's true because most of the time there's no majority shareholder in most big companies. And so the boards have to be proxies for the owners. But most of the boards, the individual board members, don't have a vested interest in the company. So the problem is these boards are largely a, um, a good old boy club. You know, you, you have a board of a company, you, you invite your friends to be on the board. It's a way to kind of reward them because they get paid for being on the board. It's kind of a, a, a badge of honor because look who I am. I'm, I'm on the board of Exxon or I'm on the board of AT&T. So it's a, a prestigious thing. And so it's more of a ceremonial thing than a real governance. So his, uh, his point is, the result of this is that management tends to listen to the largest investors and or media, Tom, 
who make the most noise. And these parties generally are myopic and narcissistic. And so consequently, our boards are largely ineffective in terms of governing organizations well. According to McKinsey studies, the most effective ownership structure tends to combine some exposure in the public markets with significant commitment from a long-term owner. There was a study done a few years ago, and I think I may have shared with this with you guys at one point, where they looked at the return on investment um, of companies that were that where the uh, uh, management did not have any significant ownership interest and no tie to the founding family versus companies that did. And it wasn't. It, hopefully, it's not surprising to you know that companies that have that have did have significant ties to the founding family and significant ownership interest they performed far far better than companies that didn't. So this is just consistent with what McKinsey found out as well. So here's the recommendations that they made. Ownership-based governance with the following characteristics. More efficient boards, that is board members taking time to be with executives and investors. Board members with more relevant knowledge about the industry. You know, if AT&T has, uh, has the chairman of ConocoPhillips, who, by the way, was... Um, one of my classmates at school, and he's on some of these boards, and he knows virtually nothing about those companies. He knows about the oil and gas business, but he's on the boards. That's a point of prestige for him. Well, we need to have board members that are knowledgeable, that know something about the business. We also need more effective board committees, not committees controlled by management. We need more sensible CEO pay, Link compensation to the fundamental drivers of long-term value, not to next year, but to five and ten years out. Extend the time frame for executive valuations to three to five years. You know, most of us, we evaluate our employees every year. Maybe we ought to think about evaluating them over a longer time. The CEOs need skin in the game, and one suggestion was to invest a year's salary in the company. Finally, we need to redefine shareholder democracy, give greater voting power to those that have, are long-term investors. It's a very interesting point. Well, here's, my, here's the conclusion. You know, he, he's offered three solutions here to help ref, re, reform the capitalism that we are practicing today, the paradigm of capitalism. Okay, revamp the incentives and structures to focus on long-term serve all the stakeholders, not just the shareholders, and boards that truly do govern. They're boards that are really effective. Now, he says to do this, you'll make, you'll make the business system stronger, more resilient, more equitable, and better able to sustain the growth the world, world needs. And obviously, you'll build trust, which those all sound good. And my temptation here is to buy this. Are you tempted to buy this? I'm very tempted to buy this until I pull out my worldview analysis tool. And my worldview analysis tool is based <clears throat> on the reality of Christ. You see, what happens in the world is the world offers us fine-sounding arguments. Look at Paul's words here. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. I don't know about you, that's what I want. I want the riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, if I want to understand anything, if I want to understand economics, public policy, business, families, church, 
You know, it doesn't matter. I have to start with Christ. Christ is the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And with all due respect to Dominic Barton, I think we have a fine-sounding argument. It is not built on Christ. So that's where I was very convicted as I read this thing a couple of times and realized, man, I didn't immediately recognize this. I had to pull out the tool to see it. So let me show you my tool. You should, hopefully you guys remember this from last year. These are seven key elements of any worldview. And any, every worldview has to address these. The first element is theology, because your theology, whatever it is, drives everything else in your life. Because you cannot escape a reality. No one can escape this reality, and that reality is, in the beginning, God. That's it. That's where it all starts. There's nothing for us prior to in the beginning. We live in a physical universe that this spiritual being that we know as God created, and he said, in the beginning, God. He starts it all. There's nothing that exists outside of a relationship with him. So your theology drives everything else. Your ontology is your view of existence. For example, is it dualistic? Is it holistic? Is it deistic? Is it atheistic? Does truth exist? If so, is it absolute truth or relative truth? So you have to answer all those questions. And every worldview does. And it answers those questions based on the view of God that you've embraced. Epistemology is your source of knowledge. How do you know what you know? And where do you go to get knowledge? Hermeneutics is how do you interpret your source of knowledge? You know, it's not good enough to interpret a source of knowledge. When I was in the lab doing my Ph.D. work, I did experiments and I gathered data. Well, that's great. I had data. Now I have to interpret the data. And I have to interpret it in some way. I have a theory I'm testing. I have to have some hypothesis I'm working on. So you have to have hermeneutics to understand epistemology. Then anthropology is the nature of man. What do you believe about the nature of man? Teleology is the nature of is there a purpose or not? And finally, ethics is how do you make decisions? Every day you make decisions, and every one of them is an ethical decision. So here's the worldview of the article. This, this is my analysis of it, and I don't claim it's the right analysis. It's just my analysis. You may see something different. First of all, the theology is mammon. This is all about money. Secondly, the ontology, it's dualistic. That is, it is it's a naturalistic approach. There is no mention of God in here. If this guy is a theist, he's a deist. A deist is someone who believes that God exists, but God is not involved and engaged in his created order, so it's up to us just to figure it out. Epistemology is empirical. This is the way naturalists work. It's all empirical data. And the interpretation is reason. The anthropology is human potency, which is a fundamental presupposition of postmodernism. Who knows what human potency is? Human potency. Carlos, you know what human potency is. It means human power. Humans have the ability to do whatever humans want to do. That's, that's a postmodern assumption. Okay? And finally, the, <clears throat> the ethics is driven by the ways of man. Excuse me, teleology is about the will of man. That is single generational prosperity. It's all about man doing what man wants to do. What's your purpose of life? Well, I, I get to define it. I'm going to define what my life is all about. 
And finally, ethics is about the ways we live, the way the decisions we make, and it's all about the ways of man defined by human beings. So, would you agree with me that's not biblical? There's virtually nothing on that list that is biblical. Now, I, I can say, okay, empirical data, I, I, there is a place for that in a biblical worldview. Reason, there's a place for that in a biblical worldview. But the other things, I don't have any use for at all. So a biblical worldview, may I propose this, is number one, it's based on Christ. There is no other foundation. If you build on anything other than Christ, it is wood, hay, and stubble. It will be destroyed. My ontology is holistic. That is God. In the beginning, God is true of everything, every situation, every topic, every issue. It starts with God. The primary source of epistemology is revelation. Empiricism is subordinated to revelation. I understand physical experiments, living life through the revelation of the Word of God. And I understand that revelation through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit illuminates me so I can think clearly. See, if I can't think clearly, I'm stuck with a depraved mind. A mind that cannot think clearly. And the only way I can think clearly is through the illuminating work of the Spirit. Anthropology, Scripture teaches human depravity, not human potency. Human enablement is required to do anything well. Excuse me. When I say human enablement, I should say human empowerment. That's the wrong word there. Human empowerment. That's empowerment by the Holy Spirit is what's required. Sorry for the typo. Teleology is about the will of God. And God is a multi-generational God doing a multi-narrative. Excuse me, a meta-narrative. Who knows what meta-narrative is? Other than Dennis and, and some of my students can't answer that. Who knows what a meta-narrative What's a meta-narrative? The overarching story. Yes. That's right. Until you can see God's meta-narrative, you will not be able to see how you fit in. If you're trying to come up with your purpose in life outside of the context of his meta-narrative, you will not understand reality well, and you won't discover what he wants you to do. So we've got to recognize how he works. And finally, ethics is about the ways of God, and he defines how things are done. So do you see a difference? I mean, when I did this analysis, it was like, whoa, I'm just so convicted. It should have jumped all over me as soon as I read this article, but it didn't. So I'm at a new level of conviction that I need to get more biblical in how I read things. So I've got a revised conclusion for you here. Um, the three things that he brings up, the three suggestions, we need to get rid of short-term thinking, we need to serve all the shareholders, and we need true, true quality governance of our organizations. Those were his solutions. Now, the biblical solutions, instead of, for example, short-term thinking being single-generational metrics, as he proposed, it should be multi-generational metrics. Serving all the shareholders, biblically should be serve the Lord first and then the stakeholders. And finally, the governance issue, it's not more board involvement that we need. It's alignment with God's will and God's ways. That's what we need. And that's what you're going to hear from Dennis. How many of you have read the introduction to his, his book? Hopefully all of you have. You see he's, he's driving to that. He's very diplomatically trying to drive people to that reality. And I hope people have the ears to hear that. So uh, may the Lord give us all grace to learn to live according to His will and His ways. In Jesus' name.